0: Hello, hello, podcast listeners. This week we get to hear from Christine Laurie, who is a very experienced and seasoned midwife working with Doctors Without Borders. Her career as a midwife is filled with worldwide adventures and stories. So let's get started. Welcome to the Journey to Midwifery podcast. This podcast platform is for midwives to tell their story. This is where you get to hear the how and the why a person is called on this journey to midwifery. I'm your host, Amber Wilson, a midwife myself, and I came up with this idea so that all those people asking these questions had a place to go to find answers. I hope you enjoy these stories as much as I enjoy recording them. Okay. Okay, Christine, I'm happy to finally catch up with you and have you on. So um, before you tell me your story, can you tell me where you are? Yes, I'm currently
1: in Cabo Delgado, Mozambique. So if
0: there's any weirdness with audio, it's totally my fault. (laughs) I'll just say, have you repeat it? But it's pretty good now, especially compared to the other day. It's a good signal. Yeah, for sure. So I'm looking forward to hearing your adventures, but take me back to the beginning and tell me what brought you to midwifery.
1: Yeah, so, you know, I get asked that question from time to time over the years, I have gotten the question, and I never really. Uh, because the answer is so roundabout. I never really give, uh, give the actual answer because it's kind of odd. Um, or I think it is. So I, you know, I grew up, I'm the oldest of nine and, you know, my mom was just teaching internally pregnant throughout my whole childhood. I was in my teens when she had her last baby. Mm-hmm. So I kind of grew up around that. Um, she wasn't she went to the hospital to have her babies. So she was not a home birther. But I was always very curious about pregnancy and birth. And of course I loved the babies and all of that. But I never really thought about any of that growing up in terms of a career. I I just I wanted to be an opera singer. So And I actually was. Um, But when I was about 24, 25, there was um, a Today Show episode or Good Morning America, one of those morning shows. And they featured the book Mother Wit, um, which is about Oni Lee Logan, the old granny midwife down in Alabama. She's since passed. But that that book had just come out. And I was just riveted and I'm watching this interview and I'm hearing about the book and literally inside of me, I can still remember it, I said to myself, and I may have even articulated it, I'm not sure, but I remember thinking, that's right, that's what I wanted to be. At the, at, very quite literally, I know it sounds weird. The next thing I did, with it, the interview was over, I went to the phone book. And there's the yellow pages right i mean there used to be there we, in the olden days we had a phone book and yellow pages and i thought oh, i'm gonna look m for midwife and the yellow pages and i couldn't find anything and so then i'm like well who might know and so i thought well there's a, like a women's resource center in town so i called them and they were a little bit baffled by my question but they're like yeah I think there is somebody and they gave me her name and she happened to be a CNM who um was practicing home birth and I called her out of the blue and I told her that I wanted to attend births and I wanted I had no idea what an apprenticeship was or anything I just knew I had to do this and uh so she humored me and she talked to me a little bit. She's like, yeah, if I have anybody that would let you come along, I'll, I'll give you a call. And so kind of a week goes by and she doesn't call, so I call her back. And I think I did this like three times before she finally relented and invited me to her house where she did prenatals to attend some prenatals with her and then get the okay from you know from one of the moms and then two of the moms to go ahead and attend the births and stuff. So. That's really how it all began. So it's an odd story, which you can see why I wouldn't want to necessarily just tell it to somebody at a cocktail party. Why? Why? Because it's so, it just, it sounds a little far-fetched, but that's exactly what happened. So it was really a calling, I would have to say, because I felt a strong draw. And even after I started attending births with this midwife, she kind of laughed and she's like, yeah, you were pretty persistent. (laughs) Like, yes, I was. But I knew that that's what I had to do. And here, here I sit 32 years later. So obviously I was supposed to do this.
0: Yeah. It sounded really? very spiritual when you say it like that. Like, oh, this is what I'm supposed to do. I, that's, I, it was just something deep down inside of me
1: that it was just like I remembered something mm-hmm. that I had since forgotten. And that was my, so my last performance in opera was La Traviata and um, i realized i couldn't be on stage and be on call at the same time that was just not possible so i left opera and i became a midwife
0: that's a career change yes yeah
1: very much yeah
0: so is your training as a cpm or a cnm yeah so well um
1: neither. I, so I did her apprenticeship with her. This was just before the CPM came into being, or it was just being born. Okay. And I, I, after a few births with her, we attended a, a midwifery meeting for the state, and I met a midwife there that attended lots of births uh, about an hour away amongst the Amish, and she happened to ask, um, and, you know, if, Is there anybody that would like to maybe come up and help me with births? Or, but, and my hand couldn't have shot up fast enough. Nobody else raised their hand, but I said, I'll do it. And so I did. I was attending t- 10 and 12 births a month with her in the Amish community and attending births with this uh, CNM as well. So it was a lot. And then, so yeah, I didn't pursue any kind of licensure or anything like that. I knew the CNM was or the CPM was just kind of getting out there um, at that time and that, that I could do that. It was still pretty unorganized at that point. Um, and it was years before I got my CPM. I resisted it for a long time for a variety of reasons, um, but like 2007 was when I ended up, I, it was the end of you know, being able to be grandmothered in and so I saw the end coming and I'm like, oh, unless I wanna go through the whole apprenticeship thing that, which would be really laborious for me at that point, I should go in under the grand midwife status. And so I was one of the last to do that. Um, but it was a long time um, before I kind of allowed myself to do that. And I, it was interesting because I practiced illegally in a few different states all that time and you know, I always felt like I really had nothing to lose except you know, the state coming and taking me away in handcuffs. I, that could have happened. And, and it did happen to some of my friends, actually. So it was a very real thing. But they couldn't take anything away from me, like a, a license or mm-hmm. registration. Like that. And so in some ways, I felt a little safer. So I got my CPM. And it was really funny because... Six months later, a pediatrician filed a complaint against me, and I'm like, "See, this is what happened." I oh. couldn't believe, it. and it was it was a really bizarre thing. Like, there it was totally unfounded, and the state totally just ended up just throwing it out. You can't find any record of it because there was no basis for her complaint, but just the fact that she had somebody to complain to, and six months earlier she wouldn't have because I wasn't registered as anything anywhere. And it was so frustrating for me. Um, and so, yeah, it was just, uh, it was, it was not a pleasant time, but, um, but that's the only, uh, the only time that, that I've ever had any issues with that. But, and I've kept my, now I have my CPM, I've kept it current and it allows me to do what I'm doing now. So.
0: Yeah. So in your career, while you were in the States, did you, have a family or anything besides midwifery that kept you busy
1: yeah not until um not until uh, my son was born um he was born in the year 2000 so i was a midwife for a long time um before i had children and then i knew that um and i only had one (laughs) and i knew that if i ever had a baby that i did not want to be um going to births with my baby, nor did I want to be leaving my baby behind. And I watched um, a lot of midwives do that, just pumping into the sink during a birth and, um, or bringing their babies with them. And then there, the baby's crying in the other room, the woman's in this room hemorrhaging, literally I've been in that scenario with, and it's just like, this is just not, I don't want to do this. And so I was living in Guatemala at the the time when my son was born and he was born there, um, unassisted um, down in Guatemala. And so I was able to, um, I was able, because I was in a birth center there, I was able to be there and have him with me. And there were enough, enough other people around that I never had to leave him, but I also didn't have to assist somebody while my, baby was crying in the other room um, with nobody to, to attend to him, like that never had to happen. Um, a few years later, I moved back to the States, and then I really didn't want to practice at that point and really tried to get, to get away from it as much as I could, but um, uh, I, it was really the only and best way to make a living without, again, le- you know, just leaving him with somebody else. I was raising him on my own and I felt very strongly that I didn't want to put him in daycare, or, or I didn't have family around, so it wasn't like I could leave him with a family member. That wasn't an option. And uh, and that's just me personally. I mean, daycare or leaving your baby with somebody or child is absolutely acceptable. It was just not, not for. Me. I just wanted. Just I just needed to for for. Me. Reasons and and so I, I did do a few births here and there. And um, when he got a little bit older, past toddler age, and, and then I left him with friends. Once in a while, he had to do a birth with me because somebody would be like, You have to come now. And, uh, and you know, when you get that call, I'm like, okay, but I have my kidneys in his jammies because it's 3 a.m. and like, it's okay, we have a room, no problem. So that happened a few times, but he was old but, and, and then it was a little easier. Um, but I did try to get out of midwifery a number of times. I tried, I tried to retire. I announced I was retired, <laughs> I told everybody. And it never, ever really worked. It was just some, you know, I just have not been able to escape it. So.
0: Something yeah. called you back every time.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I would say so. Um, part, of, um, part of it towards the end, um, at least in the U.S., was like in 2008 when we had the financial crisis and stuff. It was impossible to find Bob job doing anything else. And because my whole life had either been music, which I was certainly wasn't gonna go back into singing opera uh, at that point in time. And it certainly, where I could have done it, it certainly wouldn't have brought any kind of um, meaningful income. Um, And so really, I sort of had to fall back on midwifery uh, in a way, and and so I did, I did start up a practice again in 2008 uh, for a little while, because it was really the only thing I could do um, at that time during that that financial crisis. Because again, I was the only um, income for my family. I was supporting myself and my son. So it was the thing that afforded me to be able to be with him the majority of the time. And then a few times a month, I might have to Leave him, or somebody else might need to pick him up for school and so forth. But it didn't happen very often, um, just a few times a month, because I wasn't I wasn't that busy. I made <laughs> sure that I wasn't so busy that I had to leave him alone. Wow,
0: well, he's a lucky boy. <laughs> I don't know. We should talk to him. And ask him. <laughs> so, uh, what does he think of all this now that he's an adult?
1: Oh, he remembers, he remembers when I started dragging him all over the planet um, to do, to do humanitarian aid that started in about 2004, because I did, I got a little bit, oh, not, not bored with home birth midwifery, but it was just, I needed more stimulation Mm -hmm. than births were affording me. And so I, that was the first time that I went to Africa. He was four years old. And we, we spent the year in Ghana, West Africa. And so I think he remembers those things more than, more than anything else. I think that made more of an impression on him. And we went to Senegal uh, a few times. And um, yeah, he, he's, he's been a few places with me. Indonesia after the, after the earthquake and tsunami. I w- we were there for three months and that was really intense. He saw that devastation and, you know, he he just turned five years old. So it, it made an impression on him, I think. Mm-hmm. I mean, oh. he met children who, who lost their parents in the tsunami. He, he, he met children his age mm-hmm. that didn't have any parents. And he would tell me, mama, his parents got washed away. In the big wave, and I said, "I know, honey. You would come and tell me these things." You know, some people might say, "Well, that's a lot for a for a kid." But then, when you see all of the things, the violence that's on TV, and people turn that on, and it's it's kind of it's it's fake violence, but it's still violence. And then, but then to be in the real world and hear these things—I mean, we were able to talk about them. Mm-hmm. Um, the last time I remember the last time he was with me in Senegal, um, he came to see me at the clinic, but then a lady had rushed in with a three day, her three day old baby. And he watched me with the midwives, um, work to, to resuscitate that baby. Um, she was very septic and there was going to be no saving her, but, but we had to try anyway for the sake of the mother. And he stood in the doorway and he watched me do that. And I remember looking up and seeing him, and I almost said, "You know, you need to go wait in the other room." But then the other part of me was like, "This is why I. This is why I do this work," and he knows that, and he needs to really understand what what it means. Um, and so I think in that way, um, I. think I think it was good for him. I mean, we talked about it later. He asked me about it, and he, you know, he talked. He expressed about how it was sad, and I said, "Yeah, and it is sad because not every baby makes it. And even in our country, they don't always make it." So, so I think for him, um, he saw a part of life that other even people as adults, I think, in our country don't necessarily ever get to see. So, yeah, he, he had an interesting childhood.
0: For sure. He did. So I do have like a, you know, uh, how question. Like, how do you take him and on these humanitarian missions and like, is there an income? Like, how did you care for him? Or did he just live with you and live life wherever you were? How did that work? If you're, if taking a child along?
1: Yeah. So when he was four and I went to Ghana, um, you know, I wasn't so worried about, I was going to get behind in school because he, he had never even been in school, but I enrolled him in school and we were with, um, we were near an orphanage and, um, there was an orphanage in that village, which was um, really where the the project was through. They had set up um, a center for um, a well-woman center to help give women prenatal care who otherwise wouldn't, you know, have it and testing and so forth. And the orphanage set that up because so many of the orphans were there because they would lost their mothers. And if we can keep the mothers from dying, then we can keep the orphans from coming in to the orphanage. Um, I mean, I think that was their, you know, their, their reasoning. And so I was working there, but I was able to send him to school uh, with the, with the kids at the orphanage that were his age. Um, and he wore a little uniform and, um, and uh, the, it was a, catholic school i think was the school that they were going to because all um all of the education pretty much in most african countries is all private there is no public school like we have you know in our country and so he went to the school with the rest of them and he would come back with little you know little things from the mostly drawings and stuff and little alphabets i wasn't too worried about him learning Um, or not learning or being behind. I mean, he did end up learning. He speaks and reads and writes, so he did okay. But, uh, and when we were in Indonesia, he went to a little Buddhist school that was right next door to where we lived. And um, it was really, um, it was cute. Sometimes I would spy on him from afar, just kind of watching him interact or see how he was doing. I think sometimes that was hard for him because he was the little white kid you know he he was um he was an anomaly and he really stuck out and he really understands uh what being a minority is because you cannot you cannot be invisible in africa when you're as as white as i am i mean i'm just, I'm white. He, he's half Hispanic, but he doesn't look at all Hispanic. So it's not even like he has darker skin. He, geez, we just couldn't pass, neither of us ever. So we always stuck out wherever we went. And indeed, I would see, sometimes he would walk up ahead of me when we were in the market and I would watch people reach out and like touch his hair or try to touch him. He, and he hated that. And They would do it secretly or try to, um, but he would, he would always say, they're always touching me. I'm like, it's because they want to see what our skin feels like and they want to see what our hair feels like because it's very strange for them because they don't see white people that often and um and really i the reason they want to touch our skin i because i finally asked I, I said well why would our skin feel any different it's like it's not so much that it feels different it's that we're so white they were told that we're translucent and that if you touched us their hand would go right through us and so <laughs> And I'm like, well, that makes sense. I'd want to touch somebody, too, if I was told that. Yeah. But, um, yeah. So, I mean, he had all those experiences and things that annoyed him when uh, when we went places. But um, but mostly he he had a good time. Yeah, I I think so. So he did almost he, he did almost die when we were in Indonesia, I will disclose. and. Um, <laughs> We were in Thailand actually, and he had a little red dot on the outer aspect of, of his ankle. And I'm like, what is that? Does it hurt? And he's like, no. And I'm like, oh, and okay. And then the next day it was a little bigger. And then it, he did say it hurt. And I'm like, oh, now he's saying it hurts because I asked him it hurt. I should never have asked him. But then we had to fly from Thailand to Sumatra because um, Robin Lim had a um, clinic in Sumatra and she needed to leave for a while and she wanted a midwife to replace her. So I said I would go in. And so I flew there with him um, first on an international flight and then we just took a little six seater and that was a Red Cross uh, flight. And by that time, um, his ankle was completely swollen and he could barely walk and he was you know, getting septic.
0: Oh my and gosh, that's terrifying.
1: I know that's what, and I, let me tell you. And I'm like, oh my God, what am I gonna do? I'm flying into the middle of nowhere. Yeah. I am in medical care. What am I gonna do? Like, my my mother will never forgive me if I let this little boy die in the middle of nowhere. I took him here. And I will tell you, pe- people always say, Oh, are you scared of this? Are you scared of that? And it, I have to say, because I went to Afghanistan a few years ago, oh, weren't you scared? And I always want to say, I never do, but I truly thought one night when I went to sleep I was not going to be awake or uh, alive. I woke up in the morning, so I was trying to let myself not fall asleep because I was really afraid he was going to die. And when you felt that kind of fear, then really you're kind of afraid of nothing else in the world, honestly. And, and it's true. I've never been so afraid in my life. And um, you know, it was, it was funny because I woke up the next morning, we were at Robin's and I, you know, I said, Oh, Robin, I I really thought he, he was going to die last night. I really, and she said, why didn't you come and wake me up? And I'm like, I, then I thought, well, that's a good that's a good question. Like, why wouldn't I have just said I'm terrified? Like, of course, she would have just sat there with me all night. Yeah. <laughs> just, I was so like, I just didn't want to bother anybody with my petty problems. <laughs> you know, like, oh, my gosh, what was I thinking? Of course, she would have sat there. But um, we, um, one of the the ladies who cooked for us, um, uh, Ibo Isa, she had some little poultice thing that she put on his ankle and with all these green leaves in it she made a you know just this poultice and she just put it on this big giant blister now that was was there and um he was you know he had a fever his his body was he had a whole body rash oh and he was such a, yeah and uh and she came in and put that on and then she was saying some some words you know praying and and he's lying there. He's like, is she praying for me? And I said, I said, yes, honey. And and, he, and he's like, and he just nodded his head. And I'm like, I didn't care if she was conjuring up witchcraft or I didn't matter to me at that point, just anything. But that poultice was the thing that pulled all of that, um, that poison up. And that just made that little, I mean, it was this giant, it was this big. It was like the size of a half dollar on the side of his little ankle. And he was like five years old. So um, that's what started to heal it. And then he slowly started to get better. But I mean, I was carrying He couldn't walk at a certain point. I had to carry him when he had to go down and um, if he needed to pee or something, I had to carry him down and he couldn't put any, any weight on his leg at all. And, um, but once I got through that night I saw a little bit of improvement, and um, then I knew he was going to make it, but man, it was dicey there for a while,
0: and I was terrified. Yeah, that is scary. Did he have any long-lasting effects, or he got all better?
1: Well, he got all better, and uh, it was funny because the anchorage Horrible for a long time, but then he was out running around. But any local that came and saw his ankle, they looked at it and they just nodded and went. I mean, it looked. I still have pictures. They are disgusting, and they just looked and they just nodded and then they were like, "Oh yeah, that's a spider bite." I mean, they they didn't say that in English, but through my interpreter, they would be like, "Oh yeah, that's a that was a spider bite." (laughs) Like they had seen it before. Oh my gosh! Yeah, and then these foreigners came in, these French. these French uh, doctors uh, came in just to kind of stop by the clinic and stuff, and they saw his ankle. And of course, he was better by this time—no fever or anything—and he was walking again. And they were like, "Oh my God, he needs IV antibiotics. You got to!" And I'm like, "Oh no, he's better now. Don't worry." <laughs> they were just appalled that he had this horrible thing on his ankle. I'm like, "You don't understand this. It's healing. It's better. So just don't even worry." But they were just mortified. That, um, that he had this horrible, uh, this horrible wound on the side of his ankle. But wow. yeah, quite the story, but no, he's fine. He's fine. He did have malaria a few times. Um, that was also, and that was not as scary because I knew it was malaria and he probably wasn't gonna die. I've had malaria a few times myself as well since then. But it was scary the first time he had it. Um, his, I went into he we slept in the same bed. You know he was like four and we were in Ghana and and I went to get into bed and I touched him and he was just on fire. And then he started to hallucinate. He had these really elaborate hallucinations when he um, when he had fevers with malaria. To the point of where he was pointing at things, and I literally was turning around to look because I was so convinced that something was there. Because that's how vivid these these hallucinations were. And he had no memory of the hallucinations, but but that was pretty pretty scary. Homeopathics was the thing that um, the homeopathic remedy China um, was the first thing that I gave him when he had um, malaria, and And that worked incredibly well. Um, The next couple of times, it didn't. The third time I actually needed um, Arthameter, which is now kind of standard. It was just brand new um, coming out to treat, you know, 14, 15 years ago. So, and then I needed to use that to the third time to um, really help. Um, And that also actually is a a derivative of the same thing they use in the homeopathic remedy, China. So it's the same, it's the same plant, just in different form. Um, But that worked, but I wasn't nearly as scared with the, with the malaria.
0: So what made you come back to the States and stay there for a while?
1: So yeah, these were just, um, these were just trips that um, I went in, went on that were, you know, some like some were for a few months, some were for several months, some just like six weeks, like in Senegal and so forth. And so we still had a home base in the U.S. Um, and then when he got a little bit older, I wanted him to be in school a little bit more. Um, uh, you know consistently I guess and so we would only then go for like six weeks or so and he would bring school work along and you know then he was a little older and he was able to actually be a little bit more focused with his school work and do things while I was in the clinic and so that that worked out okay and there were always other people you know and it's you're it's a village you're you're in a village with other people everybody knows everybody so there was always somebody to take care of him so and it was somebody he knew and liked and he had friends
0: yeah how did you how do you even go about like going from place to place how does this happen where they say hey Christine come here okay let's go here next how does that work well both (laughs) both
1: okay so well back then I just um I I found opportunities through different organizations um, and that was mostly um, most of it was volunteer work when we were in Ghana that was um, supposed to be like a full year so I got a little bit of a stipend I didn't really have bills back in the U.S. to pay and so the stipend kind of got me through there um, and that was not um, so I mean that paid for any living expenses and most of the time you're your, your room and board is, is covered in those situations. Um, so that's, um, so it was easy enough back then. Um, but now I am actually employed. I work for um, Médecins Sans Frontières, uh, Doctors Without Borders. And, um, and I, it's, it's my job. So um, I was put into their pool back in 2018 and um, it had been, oh, maybe, a dream of about 10 years, I would say, that I, I wanted to, to work with them um, when I realized that um, they accepted midwives. And I thought, oh, when my son grows up, <laughs> that's what I'm gonna do. And so uh, that's what I did. So I, yeah, I applied to be in their pool and then they offer you missions different uh you know different places it's a different place all the time before i worked with them i um worked with the italian ngo um emergency and i went to afghanistan and i spent six months there and uh all that also was paid and um and you get health care and everything so um it's really it's quite quite wonderful and then um then with doctors without borders i spent nine months in sierra leone and then three months in Bolivia. Uh, And then another three months in Bangladesh in the Rohingya refugee camp. And then now I'm here in uh, Mozambique. So, and I had to learn Portuguese for this mission. So (laughs) the Spanish was okay for for Bolivia because I speak Spanish Um, and I speak French too, but I haven't been to any um, countries with the French, so.
0: And on each mission, Um, what are you doing each every place you go what's your job
1: good question yeah so it's a little bit different every mission Mm -hmm. in um, in Afghanistan I worked um, in a busy very busy maternity we were attending about we had about 700 births a month and uh, so it was super busy and my job was to um manage the the national staff midwives um who were all they're all very young um 20 something young um uh, midwives and mentor them and you know help them with more complex things um because you saw everything there um, so that was so a I,
0: setting I assume some form of hospital
1: it was it was okay. a, a hospital setting that was not low resource um so to speak. We we did have access to, um, I, I did, I, there were surgeons there. Um, mm-hmm. It was all the women were, or all the staff was women because it's only women that can work with the, with the women because it's a Muslim population. And we, uh, yeah, we saw everything. We had, you know, I, I had to be present for all the breaches and all the twins and, you know, manage all the women with polyhydramnios and and any other, you know, just, you name it, I saw it. It was an incredible, um, an incredible experience. They didn't, although we did do cesareans, they did not do them super routinely. They did them for maternal health reasons, not to save the baby um, because because when you deal with a population like that once they have a cesarean they go on and have many many children so if you cut some woman open when she's having her first or second baby she's going to be high high risk for forever because they don't always come to the hospital um, some of the population is nomadic um, and you know they just they're not quick to to cut them there so, um, if we had heart tones that weren't so great, it would be like, well, let's just get this baby out. Uh, like, let's push the baby out (laughs) encourage the baby out, but it wouldn't be like, oh, let's rush her into a cesarean. Um, it's only if the mother was in jeopardy. Um, so I got to see a lot of really fun things. We, We had, we had at least 10 cord prolapses while I was there. And, uh, just, just all sorts of stuff. You, you name it. Um, we dealt with it. I, I have seen, I have seen women so enormous with amniotic fluid. Like we would drain easily four or six liters out of somebody, and then bring them back to the ward, and then come back the next day and drain a little bit more. I mean, it was just until finally, then it's like, okay, it's time for you to have your baby. So, and breeches every which way, you know, it didn't matter how they were coming out. Um, You know, one foot, two feet, one knee, two knees, (laughs) just anything, (laughs) just anything. It was crazy. So I did like a hundred and something breeches just in that time, you know, like like an, an unusually odd amount and a whole bunch of twins, lots of twins. So then I saw conjoined twins I saw a lot of fetal anomalies, things like that. So, but that so that mission was all just totally midwifery. Um, Sierra Leone, there was a lot of uh, there was uh, some mentoring of the midwives, um, making sure they had the supplies they need um, in the different um, peripheral clinics around uh, where our base was. So I was traveling sometimes three hours one way to go to really remote clinics. Um, I dealt with mental health there um, um, in terms of uh, postpartum psychosis. I remember we had um, a patient uh, that I dealt with um, and we treated for that. And also there's um, sexual violence, which is what this in Mozambique is primarily what I'm doing here is um, dealing with um, an internally displaced population. There's been a lot of... um, violence in this area in the last couple years so there's um, refugee populations here and when you take a population and you um put them in really close living quarters all on top of each other under tremendous stress like that there's a lot of violence and um and the women take the brunt of it the same was true in uh, in bangladesh there was a lot of um, sexual violence um there, and the midwife that's our job that's in our job description is managing sexual violence that's part of the sexual and reproductive health care with uh, with msf so it's a big part of what we do in a lot of our um in a lot of contexts so here that's primarily what I'm doing. I probably will not see any babies be born here. Um, I will probably be doing um very minimal um uh prenatal care that i mean there are midwives and nurses here that are doing the prenatal care and i just oversee them and make sure they have what they need Um, but the women mall birth at home i mean by home in their tents in the refugee camp um and uh but uh but the the sexual um violence component is mostly what i'm going to be addressing and training the staff to be able to deal with that. So what we do is we don't come in and do the work for them. We come in and we assess the needs and then we train the local, um, the national staff um, to be able to manage when, when we're away because it does, it's not sustainable to go in with the white savior mentality and be like, okay, I'm here to save the day are there to impart what it is, you know, um, to the people here, so they can go on and make it sustainable. Because I don't speak the local language. I can speak Portuguese, but the local people don't speak Portuguese. They speak a a tribal language. I don't speak that, but my national staff colleagues do. So they're going to be able to have a better rapport um, with, um, with the women that come in. And so it's really important that um, that the work be done in, in that manner where you're um, really imparting all the, the knowledge and doing all the training uh, so that they can carry it on then when you're not here anymore.
0: Do you in general feel um, like it's well received to have the help and guidance when you go to these places?
1: Yeah, it's a little different every time. Um, <laughs> It is in in some places more than others. Um, I think the when it's a big crisis, like you know when we go in for Ebola, I think it's mixed. I think the the local staff sees the value and wants the help and needs the resources, but then a lot of times the surrounding community feels like we brought the problem in, mm-hmm. or that we're there are a lot of myths surrounding because the bad things have happened in Africa when white people come. So, and certainly not everybody who works in MSF is white, but there are enough white people in the staff, like right now, even um, that you know, it's, it's, there can be that perception. And so there w- they had cholera here, um, or they, they still do, but there was a big cholera outbreak the last few months and it's getting better, but we cannot use the word cholera when we go in and set up the cholera centers because, because they equate it with us bringing it in. And it's just, it's just strange because it was we're responding to it but if we were here and then we set up these centers and suddenly all these people are sick they for some reason think it's it has to do with us making people sick and they're they're not really it's the understanding is very very poor and there's just it's just rumor like anything else um and of course that's not what we're doing but so you know when you ask if we're well received, it just depends on, on who it is. I think sometimes um, the local population is very grateful and other times they're, they can be confused or mistrusting. And so we have specific teams like our um, health promotion teams who specifically go out, and this is all local staff, and they go out and they educate the people in the community and let them know why we're there and what we're there for. And, um, and that you know, it's safe to come to us, and and that helps. Um, that helps a lot. But and and I have had people um, thank me, or I've had somebody I don't know pay for something when I was in a store, you know, buying a coffee or something, and say thank you for helping our people, things like that. So that's really nice. Um, so some some people are. Um, our understanding and they really do want it and they knew they know that it's um that we're there to help but you know it's it's a it's a very fine line between help and interference and you know it's someone else's culture and yeah do they want the help or don't they it's a question we always have to
0: ask yeah um what are your i bet your this question is going to vary but what kind of Places do you live as you go to different sites? What's your living situation?
1: Well, right now I have, you see, now the internet's been really good today. I've, yeah, Yeah. air conditioning. I have a hot and cold shower and a bathtub. It's luxurious. And, but no, my first mission in Sierra Leone, it was a bucket shower, only cold water. Um, also flushing the toilet with a bucket. It was really hot, generator on so much that I just, now to this day, I hear a generator and I just wanna lose my mind because that loud the generator was so loud on that mission. Um, But it wasn't bad, you know, you sleep under a mosquito net and it's hot and I mean, here it's really hot, but like I said, my, my room is air conditioned so, but the only reason I have that in this mission Um, is because where the crisis is happens to be in an area that used prior to COVID was a was a tourist town. It was a tourist destination, a little resort area. So all of the NGOs have sort of taken over the resort area. So we're staying in places um, that normally are meant for people vacationing but there is no one vacationing anymore. So all the NGOs are staying in these places and you know, kind of keeping the economy afloat. Um, and, and so this is why we're housed in these places that are so nice here. And that's why when I was in the middle of the jungle, seven hours from the capital in Sierra Leone, I wasn't in a place like that because it wasn't a resort area. Um, but I mean, I, my next mission could be in South Sudan and very likely in a tent with sand fleas and just a lot of misery. So it's it's it varies widely.
0: And so that is a good lead-in question. How has it changed or impacted what you all are doing?
1: Oh the COVID? Yeah. Ugh. Yeah. Well, um It halted everything when I was in Bolivia. Um, I was having such a great time there and it was a wonderful project. And then the country shut everything down and literally um, made it illegal to go out in the street. You got fined if you were out walking in the street. And even as MSF, we were only allowed to go out, you know, at a certain time, on a limited basis, and usually it was like once a once a week each of us. But um, it was really hard. There was nobody nobody out in the streets in Bolivia, and uh, we had to stay inside. But I, I got sick, <laughs> and so and I was in the hospital for four days, and I was sick for a month there. So having to stay inside wasn't so bad then because I, couldn't I. Didn't want to go anywhere anyway, but they didn't know when they could get us out because the flight, all the borders were closed and the flights in and out, everything totally closed. But the first day the embassy got um, a flight out, we were notified and then they were able to get me out. And it just happened to coincide with what would have been my end of mission because I was thinking I would have to be there for a few months beyond um, because of it. And then they had a couple humanitarian flights out and they were able to get us out. So that has been a big problem because then I was supposed to go to Bangladesh after I got, I came home, I quarantined for two weeks and was gonna leave for Bangladesh the day after I got my quarantine um, uh, finished. And it took three months for Bangladesh to approve my visa to, to to go, um, and part of it was because of COVID, and part of it's because they are usually pretty difficult anyway. But now COVID's the excuse for every all the governments that were previously a little bit reticent to give visas, but then relented. Now they just use it as a as a reason. Their their embassies close. They only process on certain days. It took me two months to get a visa to come here. I was supposed to be here as of January. So it's impacted it quite a bit. And there have been quarantines on each end. And you know, if somebody here gets sick with anything, they immediately have are stuck in the room. People bring them food, they have to stay in there. We don't have any tests here. So they're just presumed positive and then anybody that's lived with them or been in close quarters with them for any length of time, those people also have to quarantine. So it's a big mess because at any given time, a quarter of the staff is in quarantine for a week. You know, it's just, yeah, it's it's crazy. It's crazy. And, and I've had so many, you, every time I fly, I have to have a COVID test and I hate it so much if I have one more thing stuck up my nose again I just before they just used to do, you do one nostril and now they've done the two both nostrils and then the throat and I'm like come on you guys what next and then I heard what they're doing in China and I'm like oh my god no 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 so um yeah, I won't even go there um so yeah it's just I've read a, the article just a part of, yeah. yeah so I mean it's just a part of life now but um But yeah, it's just this bizarre,
0: surreal. What do you do in between these missions? I, I stay in my
1: house away from everybody so that I so that I don't get it, because it's not even that if you get COVID, it's if you have any symptom of anything. I could have just a little summer cold, but I can't get on a plane with sniffles and whatever, or even a low-grade fever, even if it's not COVID, you know, so I have to stay away from everybody. I have a little dog, my dog, Drago, um, and it's, it's him and me. I bought a house, and I've been um, decorating the house and doing all sorts of fun things in the house, and uh, the house is not too far from my mother, and she's 83 now, and so I I spent a lot of time in between missions with her, and that has been really wonderful um, because I haven't lived near her for many, many years, so we've got to spend so much time together, and now my dog is there with her and her dog, and so, yeah, I'm a little bit homesick more this mission than other missions because I was enjoying spending a lot of time with my mom.
0: How long will you be where you are? Um, I'll be here into June, Mm -hmm.
1: another few more months, three more months.
0: And now you have like this storybook career, just, I really think you should write a book. I know you say you're not going to, but my question is how would, if somebody wanted to get involved in what, in Doctors Without Borders, how would you give them advice to do that?
1: Yeah, um, so if they're in the U.S., um, uh, we, so MSF has um, an office in New York, and um, if they went to the website, there's all of the information on being field staff there, um, so you can, pick whatever profile and so if it's midwife you can click on that and it basically tells you exactly what you need. They really highly encourage you to have language skills so French is really encouraged a lot of the places that we go are French speaking countries and it's just this huge fluke that for some reason I have not gone to one yet. But because most of the countries we go, we go to DRC and you know, just whatever they speak French in the Congo, they, um, they speak French all over all over Africa and um, so it's a handy language to have. It's a little bit hard to get into the pool as a just a nurse, if you don't they I don't even think they'll even look at the application to interview if you don't have French because so many nurses apply. Midwives, um, they tend to need sometimes a little bit more, and so if you have basic French or maybe you have Spanish or even better if you have something weird like Arabic because that's a very uh, handy language to have in some of the places we go. Um, You know, then then you're more apt to um, get an interview. But um, they also want you to have out-of-country experience, Um, not necessarily even with midwifery, um, but like if you've been in the Peace Corps, anything like that, they need to know that you can rough it. They need to know that you're not going to go, it's hot and there's spiders, you know, (laughs) and want to go home because it's hot and there are spiders or snakes or whatever. So, um, because you can go to some pretty dicey places.
0: Military Um, I imagine military experience probably counts.
1: Yeah. Oh, yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, And so, yeah, they just need to know that you're a a hearty soul and it's good to have some experience, you know, um, in terms that in terms of midwifery, you know, or in terms of whatever your specialty is Um, And so at least a few years, but you know, the more the better, because, um, there are some, there are some missions where, where I think, oh my gosh, if I was a brand new midwife and I was walking into this, I would just, I would not even have the first clue what to do. And so I think it does help to have, have some experience and you have to, honestly, you have to be comfortable dealing with death because there is, in some missions, there is just death around every corner all the time, and there's no escape Um, in other missions. It's not so much, but I will tell you, when I was in Sierra Leone, again, I wasn't working so much. Um, and We did have a a little um, clinic near where I lived, and so I, I did the, Maternity there with the, the midwives, um, you know, here and there when I was available, they needed some help. Usually it was with twins or breach or something, and I would go and help them. Um, but there weren't really people. We we weren't working in a big facility where there were people dying. It was more um, it was more capacity building, so a lot of teaching and going around to the different facilities. But I was at one of them. Uh, one day to work with the midwife doing ANC care and um, seeing in postpartum stuff. And uh, there was a little three-year-old girl who had malaria and really, really sick. And I said, we, you need to get her to the hospital. Like they had started an IV and she was just, she was in rough shape. And they said, but we tested her hemoglobin when we did the glucose and she doesn't qualify for admission to the hospital and we were doing ANC and then a little while later I heard this sound that if you've ever heard it before and you probably have if you're a midwife um, working in a hospital, it's the sound of a woman who just found out that her baby has died, her child is dead. Like I heard this wail and I'm like, oh no, and we both, the midwife and I ran tearing into the room and the little girl had died. And the mother was just beside herself and I grabbed an ambu bag and, and we started, you know, I, I knew we couldn't bring her back, but I felt like I needed to do something. And uh, I will tell you that because that mission was not a mission where somebody was dying all the time or, you know, around every corner, there was death, that death hit me really hard because it was so out of the blue I was just going to do prenatals that day with this midwife for the day and it was just not I loved this midwife and we always had a good time working together it was just going to be a really nice day and I wasn't expecting anybody to die and certainly not this little girl and um and just watching you know we we prepared her body for the family to come and you know and you wrap it up and the father came and then they they carried her off and with the entourage of the whole family and they're crying behind us they you know they carry the the body off um back to the house and you know it's buried within hours usually um because they're muslim and it was just, that was hard for me. And I I remember being really surprised at how, how I reacted to that after the fact. And I think it's because it just took me so by surprise. In Afghanistan, I was ready for it at any, it happened all the time. And then you just had to go from one death to another thing over here and there was another, you never even had time to mourn the thing in front of you or to even process it. So, so in this, in that mission, when I was just so blindsided, I was like, wow, this really it was really awful. And I just felt like I should have done something, but there was nothing to be done. And this is just what happens in Africa. Children die from malaria and it's awful.
0: That is awful. You've seen really? so many things. I can't even imagine. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And so that's what I would say is, you know, before you, before you embark on this, you have to know that you're comfortable with, with these things. You have to know that you, you can deal with it. And yeah, and you have, I mean, I have colleagues here and, but there's also the social unit. Um, in New York, we, we have a psychosocial unit. We get briefed and debriefed before every mission with all the different departments, including psychosocial. And, um, and I can call them anytime. I can call them um, in New York and they'll, they'll set up a, a Skype with me and talk me through anything if I need to. Um, and so that's really, uh, they take very good care of us, I do have to say. Um, they're very, very supportive um in that in that regard so um my sister got ovarian cancer in the middle of my mission in sierra leone and she was going to have surgery um to actually diagnose it but i saw in the papers that the doctor i saw what they were going to diagnose and i knew i had to go be with her and they they flew me home they paid it wasn't even home they flew me to anchorage alaska where my sister lives it took me like two and a half days to get there but they paid for the flight to, to go and be with her. And, um, and I, the paid time off and then the flight back because it's one of the benefits. Um, you can do it for a first degree relative. Uh, it has to be a parent, spouse or sibling um, uh, for a death or, or emergency. And they're like, oh no, go be with your sister. And they had me out in, in a day. I found out on a Wednesday and I was flown out on a Friday my sister had surgery on Tuesday I arrived on Sunday so i mean i i'm so grateful because i would have been in horrible distress that whole time knowing that she was going through this surgery and had to hear this diagnosis and and that i couldn't be there with her mm-hmm. and i was able to do that and take 2 weeks off of the mission and go be with her and then go back to the middle of the jungle in sierra leone and And it was, I was very grateful. So they're wonderful to work for. It's a wonderful organization.
0: And is this more of a set, like you get a salary, even when you're in between missions?
1: No, um, I'm paid just for missions and uh, I can take a time off in between. What I do have is health care for three months after a mission. Mm -hmm. Um, starts the month after I get back. I mean, I have it this whole time, but um, but the three months doesn't start until, if I get back in June, the three months will start in July. So it'll still be for July, August, September. Um, and then, but I'm usually going on a mission every, I take usually a couple months off and then I go back because I get bored. I'm back in the United States and I think, oh, this is great. I have this time off, this is wonderful. And then I'm like, oh, I'm doing nothing with my life my life is meaningless. It's horrible. I'm going to die having done nothing, nothing to show for it. I start to feel this way and I don't know why. And so then I know I need a mission. So yeah. um, yeah. So then I just say, Hey, I'm ready to go. And then they find me something.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. So I'm curious, how do you know Augustine? oh
1: you know um we, you know we because of the pandemic i was in bolivia um, we just met virtually because um oh she was doing a little podcast and um she interviewed me about what it was like she was interviewing different midwives in different places about uh-huh. what, what COVID was like there. And so I did that with her. And then and then when I got COVID, then she interviewed me about what it was like to have COVID. I think I coughed through most of that. There were about five oh. of us on that, <laughs> um, on that little um thing. But um, I, yeah, I was already out of the hospital, but um but I was still I was still pretty sick, I think. Um but yeah and so we, then we've now we've just been we're in touch all the time. We're, Always uh, messaging back and forth, and we're we're hatching plans. We have things we're gonna do. I think.
0: So I can't wait to see.
1: He's a kindred spirit. We could mm-hmm. get into a lot of trouble together. I'm pretty sure.
0: Yeah. It can be a small world. Yeah. Yeah. Well, sure. I um, feel honored that I've got to meet both of you.
1: Oh, thanks. Well, um, what is, is your website is. name
0: so people can find that and read your blog
1: oh my blog my uh, oh so it's a wordpress it's some um, yeah m- midwife without boundaries okay
0: i'll link yeah wordpress mm-hmm. yeah i'll link it yeah, but I,
1: don't, I don't write there a lot but i do i have a few things in the in the works i have to be moved to write something and then I throw a few pictures in there and
0: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well I was enthralled I was like it was like reading a book like something you can't put down I'm reading 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 it's great it's just just like you said like if you were a new midwife or if I walked into some of those stories you told I would be like I don't know what to do <laughs> I just don't have the experience you know yeah
1: yeah it's no I, I i know, and there are still times I, it's it was a brutal awakening me in Bangladesh i think um when I was in a few situations where I mean we, we didn't have easy access to cesarean or anything and it was it was hard we're in the middle of a refugee camp and it's it was it was really pretty brutal and very rustic and and there were a few times when i'm when I'm there and I, I literally I was looking over my shoulder at one point in time and I'm in my head going, okay, what are you, you're looking, I was waiting for somebody to walk in to help me I was waiting for somebody. To, to come in to help me with this situation, and then I realized there wasn't anybody like the there were the midwives there but there, I was looking for somebody to help me, somebody that knew more than I did that could help me out of this situation. And then I'm like, oh man, there isn't anybody here that knows more than we do at this point. Like yeah. not in this camp at this time, I've been in places where somebody does know and there was somebody somewhere there in Bangladesh that did, but they weren't at my disposal. And so to be in a context where you happen to be the person that has the most experience, and you're in a really dicey situation. It's very, it's very daunting, and it's very humbling. And so I, I don't, uh, I have a real reverence for, for birth. I really do, and I, I might speak. It might sound like I speak cavalierly about it, and. Like I can do anything or I'm invincible. I know that's not true. I, I, I don't feel that way at all. I feel like I'm always learning. And um, and it's uh, if you get to the point where you think that you can do anything, um, birth will humble you in an instant. So I'm very careful to keep myself in check
0: for sure. You, I definitely come off as humble, even though I'm sitting here thinking you're like this amazing, awesome person. If I tell you this, you're probably going to say, oh no, but I can tell that about you, but really just, you just live such a cool life. And I hope that one day you'll write all these things down because I want to read them. And lots of people probably do.
1: I'll give that some thought. (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> well all right christine what time is it there for you because i'm gonna let you go
1: it's 11 22 p.m
0: okay well thank you for staying up late with me it's just about dinner time for me so um it was a pleasure truly. yes yeah it was a pleasure to meet you
1: thanks likewise
0: And everyone for listening and sharing your ideas for guests. Christine was another guest suggested by a wonderful podcast listener. Keep them coming my way at JourneyToMidwiferyPodcast at gmail.com or on Instagram and Facebook at JourneyToMidwiferyPodcast. You can find Christine's website linked in the show notes and a link to the Doctors Without Borders website to learn more about careers as a midwife with Doctors Without Borders. Until next time.